Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the Word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 26. As you're turning there, I just want to make a note. We're in the home stretch of, the, of 2023. Can you believe it? Um, there's just uh, three Sundays left in this calendar year. Um, so um, I sort of preached in a, an Advent sermon last week. This is not an Advent sermon. Um, but in the next two weeks, um, uh, I and Pastor Eric will preach related to the coming of Jesus, Lord willing, and we'll have the treat at the end of the year, the last Sunday of the year, our pastoral resident, Adam Wheaton, Lord willing, uh, will preach, um, I think that's the 31st of December. So, And he will preach um, that great text that follows this one from Matthew. Um, so if you're not able to make it, you will want to be sure to check out the podcast uh, with that sermon. We're in Matthew chapter 5. I want to read from verse 17, actually, to give us some context. And we're going to read through cha- uh, verse 26. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your holy word at this time, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. This is good and it is perfect. It is capable of comforting and converting, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold than much fine gold. Sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Lord, would you teach us today? Help me to be clear 
May your word compel us to the only hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Every school day, right at 7 o'clock, I turn on the radio in my car with my kids in tow to WBBM to catch the CBS National News every hour on the hour. I love it. It's a routine, and it's always the national and world news. But I'm kind of getting a little tired because, for one, it seems like it's the same old news, or two, it's always about somebody killing somebody. Aside from the grand stage of what's going on in Ukraine and Israel, uh, we have this week, <laughs> the flavor of the week was a professor or a wannabe professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who went in on a campus shooting spree. And we wonder, like, how long is this going to keep going? We think, well, more gun laws would help that, Right. But maybe we don't have to like, think of our, ourselves and uh, our, our country in such a problem of you know, bouncing from one mass shooting to another. All you have to be doing is drive in Chicago for a little bit and be yelled at by somebody on a bicycle or vice versa. We're all guilty in some ways, right, of becoming frustrated to the point of anger, and, you know, anger is actually safe if you're behind a driving wheel um, or on, a, on your way to something or behind a screen somewhere. It's, it feels safe to express anger. But what place does anger have in your relationships? This is a key question for us to deal with today. And I'm telling you, this is... This is not going to be very comfortable. It wasn't comfortable for me all week. But uh, this is Jesus' word for us. What place does anger have in your relationships? Well, last week as we unpacked verses 17 to 20, we see that Jesus requires a radical righteousness that the law requires. So Jesus isn't going to change the law. He came to fulfill it. And now Jesus unpacks that major thesis that you need a radical righteousness. And then he unpacks it by giving six, um, basically, statements. And this is the first one. So I've titled the sermon, uh, Simply Killing Anger. And we're going to see this in two parts, our text today. First, we're going to see Jesus clarifying what murder is. And then we're going to see Jesus exemplifying everyday murder. Not him being angry, but he's going to show you what it looks like. So first of all, in verses 21 and 22, we see murder clarified. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So what Jesus is doing here is he is addressing, he is actually confronting our very surface-level beliefs when it comes to human animosities. He's going there, and he wants to talk to us about this. So he starts off, and he uses this phrase repeatedly six times, or some variation thereof, you have heard, and he says that it was said to those of old, or to the ancients. And Jesus is setting up here an antithetical formula. You heard this. But I tell you, 
Okay, you see this several times, six times, just in chapter 5. See, he's saying, this is how you were taught and understand this aspect of the law, but now I'm going to tell you what it really means. See, uh, by that time, the, the religion of Judaism in the Second Temple era had become a, a, a religion deeply rooted in traditions, even, can I say, hearsay. And hearsay in the sense of, well, you didn't have Bibles and, or Old Testaments laying around, so you would come to synagogue or you would go hear the Word of God read and expounded. And, and it was an oral culture uh, that day. So people tended to just trust the rabbis or the synagogue readers, maybe more than the law itself. See, what happened over hundreds of years in the history of Israel is that interpretations of Torah, of the law, eventually became traditions. And so when Jesus is addressing these people, he's, he is addressing people who've been kind of hearing the same uh, the, the same exposition, the same explanations uh, over the entire, entirety of their lives and their predecessors' lives. And basically, people are of the opinion that is, yeah, if it ain't broke, we don't fix it. And that's where Jesus is saying, you've heard this. This is what you've always been accustomed to. You shall not murder. Now, we've been saying that Jesus is coming to do something here with all. He's not destroying it. He's not undercutting it. So is Jesus somehow here going to do something different with you shall not murder? Does Jesus disagree with this? No. I mean, in fact, Jesus is going right to the sixth commandment, as you find in Exodus 20.13 or in Deuteronomy chapter 5 as well. So he's he's, uh, explaining the real meaning behind you shall not murder. And so, yes, people heard you shall not murder. Of course, these are the ten words. We learn these growing up. And if you murder, you'll be liable to judgment. See, judgment for murder in the Old Testament was often capital punishment. You heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Now, if you read the Old Testament law, you saw that there were all kinds of, I wouldn't say loopholes, but different case scenarios when, you know, some first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and all those kinds of things. But Jesus is talking about the, the, um, the sense of, well, am I a murderer? Do I commit murder? And Jesus here is saying, but I say to you. Because he knows the moral higher ground that most people religiously bring to church with them and bring to their cultures and live out saying something to the effect of, well, I've never murdered anyone. Jesus knows he's talking to those type. So when Jesus then says in verse 22, but I say to you, don't gloss over that phrase. Really, he is setting himself up. He's saying, I say to you. That's the word order in in Greek. I say. Ego, I say this to you. And Jesus is setting himself in contrast to and authority over all the synagogue readers, all the rabbinic interpreters over the previous decades and millennia. Jesus is showing to his audience in this sermon, he is showing that their understanding is broken and needing fixed. So in verse 22, What does Jesus do? Jesus basically 
takes the sixth commandment and he raises the stakes on it. What he does is he's saying, the liability is pretty high on this. And it's not if you don't murder. Let's look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I mean, that's the same phrase from the verse before about somebody who murders. And then he goes on to say, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, probably like some kind of uh, Sanhedrin, some official council that would, would hear cases. But if you call your brother a fool, he says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he's got these three scenarios, and he's not necessarily constructing it on a strict, like these three things. He's basically saying that anger is something that resides in the heart. Anger is in your thoughts. He's talking about angry thoughts, angry words, and abusive names. To call somebody a fool, it didn't automatically send them to hell. Because people said this a lot. They were like the everyday epithets and names that we call people. I mean, we know this as Americans. We thrive, in a sense, on calling each other names, nicknames. But often is the case is that the names that we call each other are often abusive and driven by anger. And Jesus is getting to the heart of murder. At the heart of murder is anger. You do not have to raise a pistol, a knife, or use your car, or whatever it is, to murder someone, Jesus is saying, you do it in your heart. You do it in your minds. So he has raised the stakes of liability. And Jesus here, he, go, he goes there. Only in, in Matthew, the only time we hear before about hell is from John the baptizer in chapter 3. But here for the first time, Jesus speaks about hell, something that he speaks of often. And he says that you know, the whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And really, this is reflecting on the Aramaic Hebrew term of Gehenna um, that points to this valley outside of the walls of Jerusalem that was, in Jesus' day, it was a garbage dump. There was always something burning there. But in the past, it had been a place, the Valley of Hinnom was a place where they did child sacrificing. So this, this place had a stigma. And it was like the perfect illusion for Jesus to say that anger belongs in a place of burning. No one gets out. And immediately, when you're hearing this, you feel like, wow, he stepped on my toes. My anger, you're saying, Jesus, my anger is liable for hellfire. And Jesus is saying yes. So gone are the days, can we say. Gone is our, our rationales where we justify ourselves as good people by, the virtue of, by virtue of the fact that you have not murdered anyone. In fact, I love what uh, Don Carson said. He said, one has not conformed to the better righteousness of the kingdom simply by refraining from homicide. You don't get a pass just because you haven't taken somebody's life. In fact, 
the Apostle John, when at the end of his life, when he was writing um, those three letters at the end of the New Testament, 1 John 3.15, he said that anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that, a murderer, that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So, what Jesus is saying here is that anger is tantamount to murder. If you have been angry with somebody, you have committed murder. Jesus is going deeper. He's not changing the law. You know what he's doing here? He's saying this is what the law meant all along. This is what it means. Now, we pride ourselves, especially in the day of virtue signaling and morally high grounds. Have you seen this? Um, I think this is the time for this slide. Have you ever seen this in our, in our yards around here? All right. Uh, part of the kind of the secular creed type of um, mantra, hate has no home here. You know what? That's a, that's a very, it's a very good and sincere sentiment. The owners of that place or in that window are anti-hate. But what that reveals actually is a different kind of hatred. It actually reveals a, an inconsistency uh, that they're not aware of. And I'm not coming down on judgment because we are inconsistent people when it comes to our feelings, when it comes to anger. Rarely is our anger ever just. Anger, in fact, is relational cancer. It destroys harmony and it destroys humanity. Friends, I don't care how many gun laws we put in place. You will not be able to contain anger with more gun laws. Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. And Jesus will go so far in a sense, to say it by, by implying that anger is, is murder, I would say, what's behind your anger? How many times did you get angry this week? Let's say it was 10 times. You think, well, actually, one of them was really just. It was right, okay. So we're, this text, I'm not gonna deal with like when it's right to be angry because Jesus isn't going in that way necessarily. But did you get frustrated about something this week? And it just kind of kind of just seethed underneath? Well, you didn't explode. Maybe you're the type that doesn't, you know, you're not an exploder. exploder. You're like a seether. All right? You just kind of keep it under. But I would think that Jesus is saying that frustration in and of itself is a form of anger. So therefore, frustration is low-grade murder. That hits us all. Anger underlies broken relationships. And what Jesus is saying here is that broken relationships have both temporal and eternal consequences. The kinds of contempt and hatred that are bred by anger are grounds for eternal judgment. So take care. Please, don't say that. Anger is some kind of neutral emotion that we're all born with. We're not. We are not neutral when it comes to any of our feelings. There is no pure feeling per se. And there's no less true for anger. 
most of the time, we violate here, which makes us murderers. Can you say that to yourself? I'm not asking for you know, verbal, audible confessions here, but can you say, I am a murderer. I have hated. I have been angry. I have been constantly frustrated. You know, and if you can imagine Jesus giving this, he wasn't giving this in an angry tone. He's saying it matter-of-factly. So we're all, we're all murderers because we all struggle with some form of anger. Now, if you can swallow that pill, then that, that's great. You've taken a, a right first step in a sense of, of, of recognizing and calling sin what it is. You've had a, a breakthrough. So if you can get on board with that, that your anger is tantamount to murder, then you've understood what true murder is. And you've understood that residing in you is a murderer. So now Jesus fleshes this out in verses 23 to 26. He gives us some examples. In verses 23 to 26, what I would just call anger is anger exemplified. The first example is, is more like, it's like a parable almost, like an illustration, using the familiar setting of worship to deepen the importance of reconciliation. Let, let's just read that, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. All right, we'll stop there. Remember, where's Jesus giving this sermon? In the north of Israel, in the region of Galilee. That's perhaps a good 80 miles from Jerusalem. So when people are making offerings, they're not just like, oh, I'm going to go home and I'm going to crack open a lamb and do my own personal offering here. No, he's talking about the, the, a worship scene that was common that people could imagine right away. That the one or two, maybe three times a year that you would head up, <laughs> head up to Jerusalem, going south from Galilee, that's, a, that's your worship time. And Jesus is saying here that, you know, if you're standing in line waiting to, work, waiting to offer your, your lamb, whatever your sacrifice is, and you remember, oh, I, I really messed up with uh, that person back home. You know what Jesus is saying here? Leave the sacrifice. Leave the offering. Go back and make it right. What Jesus is saying here is that relationship is more important than worship. Jesus is prioritizing right relationships over right worship. That's right. It is not more important to get your offering done than it is to settle accounts with your neighbor with your brother or sister. You say, well, where's that in the Old Testament? Oh, I'm glad you asked. There's several. Psalm 51 would be one, I'm not gonna quote it, but Micah 6, 7, and 8, one that, you know, those who, who, you know, who 
look at like social justice. Here's social justice in Jesus' eyes. The author of the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of body for the sin of my soul? He's saying, man, should I do all the extremes and go to the lengths to worship God? Answer, he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What is more important to God is right relationship than religious rituals. In fact, one, one scholar said that we can't separate relationships with others from our relationships with God. You can't. Jesus is inherently tying your desire to please God and worship with your relationships wherever you are. And that makes it so hard. You just want to say, well, can't I just, can't I just come to church and just, you know, and bless the Lord and get my worship fix in and, you know, be pumped up for the week and, you know, take communion and all that. I mean, just, that's why I come. I want to be encouraged. I want to be built up. I I, I. This is saying here, Jesus is saying, no, it's not about you. The act of worship that you're doing is about God. And God who demands the worship is also demanding that you set things straight with your neighbor. And so the next parable is taken from the legal system. Specifically, the Bureau of Personal Properties and Debt. And Jesus says here, verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Basically, Jesus is saying, unless you settle your accounts quickly, you're looking at jail. That's what happened in the legal system. What Jesus isn't doing here is he isn't giving free legal advice. That's not the point of what Jesus is doing here. Oh, here's how you handle non-Christians, okay? No, he's saying you need to get things right, settle things. So with the principle of worship, of relationship over worship, in verses 23 and 24, here Jesus is showing the principle of immediacy, which also is you see in verse 24, leave your gift before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, come to terms quickly. First, come to terms quickly. One author said that the importance of right relationships demands decisive action. Jesus says you have to do this stat. Prioritize it. In your triage of life, put your broken relationships, your strained relationships, your conflicts. Go get those. Take care of those first. I think this whole, this whole text boils down to this, that Jesus requires that you swiftly reconcile relationships deadened by anger. That's what it is. Like, what do you want me to do, pastor, after I leave today? 
Well, not what I want you to do. What Jesus wants you to do is to go make some phone calls. Go make some visits. Have a FaceTime. Because no doubt, I don't know that there's any one person here, and I don't know everyone here equally. And I'm not, please do not think, oh, the pastors, he's targeting me. No, no, I'm not. There's somebody, there's a better pastor called the Holy Spirit. He's doing that. So if you feel like I'm targeting you, I'm not. The Holy Spirit has your number. And he's speaking to you. Jesus is required. Jesus demands that what radical reconciliation looks like when it comes to murder is like get rid of the anger that causes animosity and strained relationships. Go to the jugular. Because anger deadens relationships. You might have a lot of opinions about the wars going on here, and you know those are just fraught with a lot of tension and anger. And you think you have the answer. You think you, well, you definitely have a right to an opinion. But as I like to say, you have an, a right to, be, to have a wrong opinion as well. But here, you actually have to prioritize not being right about what's going on over there across the world. You have to get right what's going on here at home in your heart and with your relationships. I dare say, Every single one of us, every single one of us probably needs to do something this week. Don't think, I'm not going to be calling you and figuring out, I've got, because you know why? I gotta, <laughs> I've got to go wear this. I've got to go do this myself. So think of it like this, friends. You say, where do I start? Well, you know, I'll give you two illustrations. One's kind of Christmassy. You know, like those little, like, uh, nicely wrapped gifts, like boxes, and you have a big box in the bottom and a middle box and a, lot, and a nicely bow. Well, why don't you just, just start, with the one, start with the bigger one. Start with the most obvious one. Or I have a couple Matryoshka dolls. They call them nesting dolls in my, my office. Yes, because I've been to Russia a couple times. You know, nesting dolls have dolls within dolls. Where do I start? Start with the one that you see first. The one that comes to your mind first. Start reconciling there. Then open up the doll and get to the next one. Now you're saying, like, how, how thorough do I have to be? I'm not, I'm not saying it Jesus and saying, he's saying just swiftly start taking care of it. My guess is, is that we're a lot better at leaving relationships be and giving up a lot sooner than we ought to be. And Jesus is saying here, and in lieu of the Lord's table too. He's saying, "You got this is a, a cycle you have to have on repeat constantly. He's saying, Jesus is saying is that a true disciple is always combing through her relationships. A true follower of Christ is always, is always considering the state of his relationships. Now what I'm not advocating for here is some kind of paranoia. Um, that makes you conjure up every possible thing uh, that you have done wrong or what others have done against you. I'm just saying, start with the doll on the outside and then see how the Holy Spirit leads you. Romans 12, 18 says, as much as lies in you, as much as is possible, live peaceably with all people. So we know as Americans 
We are a very litigious nation. We are sue-happy people. We can sue for anything. What, what Jesus is basically saying here is he's saying you need to sue for peace. Sue for peace. Sue yourself. And what's interesting about the one about the worship, he's not saying like, oh, when you come to communion and when you come, before you come to church, think about all those people who've done something against you. No. Can we read that again? Just to back this up a little bit. He's saying, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. He's, saying, he's not saying like count all the ways that somebody's wronged you and just forget about it. No. Who have you offended? Who have you sinned against? Don't come. Well, you come to church, but don't pretend like at the communion table, for instance. And this is why we do this in a sense. This is like the basis where we get the whole, you know, when you fence the table, brother. That here, right here. Very, very clear thing. We cherish being at communion. You say, but man, my life is just riddled. My life is just riddled with, with broken relationships. Can I, ever, can I ever come to church? Can I ever have a, a good relationship? Can I ever have communion? Oh, and that's the beauty of it. We'll get, to, we'll get to the table. See, if every one of us is a murderer by virtue of our anger, and we are more angry than we thought, and we have more conflicts going on than we'd care to admit or care to rectify, what hope is there of ever seeing relationships repaired? He's the one, Jesus, the one that the disciples came and sat down at his feet, the one who is teaching, the greatest rabbi of all. Jesus is the hope for angry sinners. There were very few instances when the Son of God got angry. But when he did, it was perfectly employed. Jesus got angry at legitimate things. He got angry at injustice. He got angry and still does, friends, when we take the word of God and twist it to manipulate other people. I can guarantee you Jesus still gets angry about that. But Jesus angered a lot of people with his message and healing ministry. So don't think that I'm saying that, oh, I'm going to church. Somebody's got something against me. Uh, well, it, it might be because you spoke truth and you spoke truth in love. You don't have to, Jesus is not saying don't, don't, take, a, don't take a hit. Don't, take a, don't become a victim you know, on your own self. He, he, Jesus angered a lot of people. But this was no sin. And to cap it all off of a life perfectly lived and an anger perfectly displayed, what happens? He gets crucified for telling the truth, for treating people with dignity and justice. He's called a liar. He's spat on. He's murdered. And what is, I mean, he, for, all we, for anyone passing by in Jerusalem that day, for all they know is that this Jesus of Nazareth, with this plaque above his cross saying, King of the Jews, is that he did something bad like the other two cats next to him. 
He didn't deserve that. But what was going on when, when Jesus is crucified, what you're not seeing with your eyes is Jesus was bearing the righteous anger of God. He was taking on the full fury of God the Father that you and I deserve. We deserve to hang on a cross, to bear every one of our sins completely. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking all your murder, all your evil words and your insults, and he's taking them on himself. And the Father is crucifying him. And you have crucified him. And the Romans crucified him. And the Jews crucified him. We were all guilty. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. For they are really screwed up in how they execute their anger. Jesus does give us the possibility through his righteousness, through his holy satisfaction of divine wrath. He does give us the possibility to, as Psalm 4 says, be angry and sin not. Or how about Psalm 119.53, when the writer says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Jesus was able to perfectly feel hot indignation without disrespecting anybody. And so his half-brother James would write a letter after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, would say this in James 1. He said, be swift to hear. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. Get this, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When you become angry, when I have expressed anger, when I seethe and boil, when I let frustration run its course, and no one knows, no one can tell, one thing that is not happening is the righteousness of God being worked in me. So I, I am telling you, Jesus is telling us here today, it's just, oh, no, you need to learn to manage your anger. You know, go take some classes somewhere. You know, go, go to counseling, which, you know, some of that might be good. No, Jesus is saying as soon, when we leave here, even before we leave here, we need to be radically opposed to the anger in, in us. Oh, for a church culture that didn't dance and hide around our sins and our sinfulness, that there would be regular confessing of our anger and our sins against one another, our insulting words. How about in your home? Your home is the place where it's probably the main theater of God's work in sanctifying you. Dads and moms, husbands and wives. When the Ephesian letter is written by Paul, he said, don't let the sun go down your anger and neither give place to the devil. So here's another wrinkle to this. If you just thought this sermon was bad enough, Jesus is saying is when you get angry, you actually, it's like giving keys to the devil, to your house. And when the devil has keys to your house, what does he do? He invites himself in. He sits down. 
He goes to the fridge, checks it out. He becomes part of it. And I have to ask you, are you comfortable with that thought? Are you comfortable with letting anger so be normal that you're willing, that you're willing, it's as if like you're comfortable with the devil hanging out. And that's what God is saying. How comfortable are you, dad and mom, husband and wife, with the devil in your home? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. All right, that's a real thing, the sun. That's not metaphorical. There are cycles in a day, sunrise, sunset. And Jesus is, is the apostle saying here is that we should have regular rhythms of keeping short accounts with those that we are closest to. And a little later in Ephesians, we get this, the great verse, we like, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And on and on it goes about children obeying parents. And then it says, parents, do not exasperate your children. That word is a form of anger. Don't provoke your children to anger. Wait a minute, they're supposed to obey me. They're the ones who are blowing tantrums all the time. I mean, if you could see all the ways my children, you know, cop an attitude, blow their tops, and the one time I blow off, aren't I a little justified? No, you're not. Because sometimes what happens is when we think we are right to be angry in the loving context of a home, not only are we giving place to the devil, what we're actually doing is teaching our kids the imbalance, how, how to treat our feelings in an imbalanced way, that this is a right way to actually respond to things. And then what happens as parents, being sinners that we are, we overreact on some things, and we underreact, and then we send confusing messages. That's one of the ideas behind this idea of provoke to anger in Ephesians 6.4, is we confuse our kids. I'm saying here, like I admit, I've become angry in my home over things that really didn't matter. So the shoe fits here. And we need to guard and hawk our homes, which means that you need to take care of yourself. You need to look in the mirror. Well, you say, I'm not married. I don't necessarily live with... You know, I have kids or anyone in the home anymore. Well, let me just ask, how frustrated do you get? What, what, what gets you going every day that kind of sets you off? And then you say, well, I blame it on the news. I blame it on my boss. If you only knew my boss. These crazy drivers in Chicago. The mayor, the alderman, you name it. The list goes on. The president. And I'm going to ask you, if you are going to be the one liable to the judgment, you say, yeah, it was Biden. It was Trump. It was the mayor that I got angry. And God says, no, no, they're, you're the one on trial right now. Please, please, as you sense frustration setting in, know that you are now being sucked into a battle with anger. And we have the means. The spirit and the gifts are ours. We have what it takes to push against the demonic attack of anger. 
It's not just out there, folks. When somebody, the next time we hear of a mass shooting or we're, the, the, the news is just yet again another murder, another you know, angry person at the grocery store, instead of like, stupid people, no. Say, you say, Lord, have mercy. That is me. I could be that person. You're not a Christian. Certainly, I assume some of these things resonate with you. But if you don't settle with God, the judge of all the earth, you will never be able to work off the debt that you owe him. Someday it's going to be way too late. And if you put off getting right with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ at the eternal judgment, it will be too late. Judgment is a real thing. Don't think that, oh, those angry Christians. All right, yes, I do realize there are angry Christians, and I'm so sorry. We shouldn't. Those two words should not be together. Don't contribute to that persona. But, but no, it doesn't matter. You cannot blame your reactions on the church or on Christians or on religious people. I close with this longer portion from the book of Revelation. If you want to know what judgment is like, I think it's up there. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. The apostle says that when I saw, then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. It doesn't matter if they were, had money or insignificant. All of them. Standing before the throne and the books were opened. And then another book was, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Everything you're doing, everything that you're feeling is being recorded. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, Gehenna, gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is real. There, there will be a day. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And if your name is not written in the book of life, if you are not right with God, if you are not justified by the all-righteous one, that is your fate. Now, I don't want that to happen to you. Jesus not only demands your decisive reconciliation of broken relationships, he has made it possible to humble yourself and to get it right. May God grant us all this week the grace to kill our anger and to love our neighbors. Let's pray. God, our Father, The temptation in, in, in preaching on the ethics of anger can, can get out of control. So I just pray, Lord, that anything that might have been misleading or induced any unnecessary guilt or shame, that that would be forgotten. And I pray that Jesus would loom large in all of this. Lord, we all have work to do. We have, all have calls to make and people to get right with. And Lord, that's going to be overwhelming this week. Lord, I pray that you would give grace to every brother and sister here to take those steps.
to rest in your full forgiveness. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word. And for more info, for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.